That's where growing up in the South is a boon to a writer because we have so many characters. <laughs> and every character in my book, you know, I could take you by the hand probably and find one within three mile radius who's pretty much like that. Yeah. But for me, when I write, is similar to what I like to read. I've always been interested in books about character much more than plot. I knew I had to get her out of the house and into that car and that that would close part one. I didn't know what was going to happen in the house to get her there. I didn't know how the scenes were going to play out. I didn't know who she was going to talk to or what she was going to say. But I had that kind of guidepost. And then once I met that guidepost, I had the next guidepost and the next guidepost. So it's kind of like that. You know, I'm happy to have a map, but I'm also happy to say, wait a minute, something looks really interesting over here on the side of the road. Let's stop. I see something shining. Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to this new episode of The Writer's Block. We are calling this one, Things Aren't Quite As They Seem, and we are talking with two amazing authors who have written incredible novels about the myriad ways the people closest to us can surprise us. I am Ron Block. And I am Patty Callahan-Henry. We'll be talking with Pamela Terry about her newest, and I humbly say, extraordinary novel, mm -hmm. When the Moon Turns Blue, which is out February 21st. And then we'll be chatting with Ann Burt about her buzzy new book, The Dig, which is out on March 7th. Oh, this is going to be good. So we mm. love books that expose the cracks within all of our assumptions, too. And we have that in spades today. Wait until you hear. First up, we'll be talking with Pamela Terry, who is a lifelong Southerner who learned the power of storytelling, as most lifelong Southerners do, at a very early age. For the past decade... Pam has been the author of the internationally popular blog from the House of Edward, which was named one of the top 10 home blogs of the year by The Telegraph in England. She lives in Smyrna, Georgia, with her songwriter husband, Pat Terry, and their two dogs, Andrew and George. She travels to the Scottish Highlands as frequently as possible, and by the end of this, I'm going to convince her to take me with her next time. <laughs> I've been asking her for years, Ron, and oh, she hasn't okay. taken me. So I'll try. It's worth a shot. Yeah, right. It's always worth a shot. When the Moon Turns Blue is her second novel. Pam, it is so good to see you. Thank you for coming. It's Yay. good to see you too. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. This feels like an extension of a conversation that you and I have been having hmm. for over 20 years. Yeah. Which is wow. a conversation about the power of story in all its forms. Right. And our friend and amazing author, Sarah Addison Allen, has said about When the Moon Turns Blue, this smart, quirky novel proves that Pamela Terry is a Southern powerhouse. You should definitely be on your radar. So let's dive in. That was very nice of her. That is a 
perfect quote, though, too. It fits so perfectly. Okay. Mm -hmm. So often we ask what a book is about, Pam, Mm -hmm. and what it's really about. And I think this novel is the perfect one to ask that question. So because we have the plot, a small southern town in crisis when a statue is torn down, but it's about so much more. Can you expound on that for us? Well, I like to say it's about what happens when we come to the realization that we no longer like the people we love. (laughs) And I think for a lot of us, these past dozen or so years has, as you said, shown the cracks in a lot of foundations. I think with the advent of the internet and with everyone broadcasting their opinions so freely, I think we've had an insight into some of the people closest to us and our assumptions have been turned upside down. And has this is exposed, as you said, the cracks in a lot of foundations, right? Relationship foundation. Definitely. And I think a lot of us are trying to deal with that. People that we thought we would act one way have acted another, and people that we thought felt one way felt another. And I think this has permeated friendships and churches and families. And I think we're all trying to deal with that. And sometimes um, when something happens that is out of the ordinary, um, a little bit shocking, and in this case, it's an ice storm that hits the little town of Wesleyan, Georgia, and throws people, you know, fruit basket turnover and um, puts throws some people together that might not ordinarily have wound up in the same house. Um it it forces some reevaluations and so it forces us to look at things that we perhaps would turn away from and save to another day. Um, so that's 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 really what the book is about is about people some disparate people being thrown together in the middle of an ice storm and they wake up this the next morning and they find that the Confederate statue in the park has been knocked down in the middle of the night. And so that kind of forces everyone's hand and decisions have to be made and opinions have to be um, laid bare and what really matters has to um, be decided. So that's what it's about. Yeah. And the opening scene, I'm not going to give a spoiler, but the opening scene, I just, I it was so vintage Pamela Terry. I just, it was so great. You mean the prologue or the? No, no. The first chapter. Oh, oh, oh okay. Yeah. The funeral. Yeah. Oh the yeah. Funeral. Well, I love to write about funerals. I, you know, when you talk about things that happen out of the ordinary, Southern funerals are where, are where a lot of things happen about the ordinary. And there was a funeral in my other book, in Sweet Taste of Muscadines. Um, and it was so funny. I had several people phone me and say, do you know what happened at my father's funeral or my uncle's funeral? <laughs> I found out this about so-and-so and I didn't know this. So, yeah, funerals are hotbeds of drama. <laughs> I know. How, yes, I hope you were are. taking notes of all these things you were hearing. <laughs> oh, I always take notes. I follow everything away. All right, Pam. Yeah. This book feels very personal. I mean, maybe it's because I, you know, I've known you for a long time. Yeah. But as did your last novel felt very personal. And maybe as novelists, there's always a personal mm-hmm. You know, the books come from us. We're the only vessel that it can come from. But I would love to know where the first spark was that lit this story, what the origin of it, what it was that made you say, this is the story I want to tell, and a Confederate statue is going to be smack in the middle of it. 
Do you even know the answer to that? I didn't know the Confederate statue would be smacked. Um, um, with me, with the last book and with this one, and in generally with anything I write, I see a character and they just show up. Ah. And um, with, with The Sweet Taste of Muscadines, I was writing another book um, and I was cooking dinner and stirring something. And I wish I could remember what it was I was cooking, but um, I'd do it again. But um the first line just ran through my head and I saw this person as clear mm. as I can see the four of you. Um, and with this book, I, I was, it was during the pandemic and, you know, I was all topsy turvy, like all of us were during the pandemic. And I remember um, Margaret Atwood said that whenever she gets stuck somewhere in a story and you don't really know what to write about, or you're at a part that's kind of a wrinkle, she either irons or takes a nap. So I <laughs> took a nap. <laughs> and uh, I choose, I choose, I choose B. I, yeah, B Thank was you. what I went for. Yeah, nap always. But as soon as I um, laid my head down on the bed, I saw this woman sitting on the front row at her husband's funeral with a migraine. And um, I, I, you know, I couldn't, of course, I couldn't go to sleep. She, she got me up and uh, I started the book that day. Um, so my books are driven by character and I was as surprised as anyone else when the statue fell. Um, ah. it's, you know, I think it, for a long time, I was hobbled by something that John Irving had said I had read, um, which was whenever I start a book, I know the first sentence and I know the last sentence. And what that said to me was. I've got to know what this whole book is about before I even begin. And that really, that really handcuffed me for a long time. And then I heard, and I wish I could remember who it was. Uh, it was a writer I heard on Fresh Air and I was in the car and he said, and he was a writer I really admired. And he said, you know, I can't write a book. He said, there's no way I can write a whole novel, but I can write a sentence and I can write a paragraph. And that paragraph can become a page. And before I know it, I have a story. And that, that was what kind of opened the doors for me. And for me, you know, a lot of people have said you have to plot everything out so meticulously. That, to me, feels like homework. And if I know where everything's going, um, the fun is squeezed out of it. So for me, writing is discovery. And when that statue fell... I I was shocked and I couldn't wait to see what happened. I love that. And I told the book in in um, multiple voices because I hear so many multiple voices all the time around me. It's chatter. It's people trying to figure things out. And I wanted to get in all of those heads and try to make a whole picture. Um, so it was a joy to write and. Um, I hope it's it's enjoyable to read. Pam, I think that um, the the problem with um, getting to hear from so many authors now mm -hmm. is that we hear these great pieces of advice from mm -hmm. people we admire so much. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so then we take it as as that's the way I have to do it. Exactly. When if you line up a hundred of us, we some all, people for we all do it differently. We do. And there's we do. no it's not, you know, I used to be a nurse. It's not like medicine where right. 
yeah, there's only one way to give that, <laughs> that right. IV and that's right. in the vein, right. right? You know, there's not 100 ways to get it done. Well, and you know, and- it's, it's funny. Um, I've had several people mention, oh, you have a, such a voice and we're just about to talk about that. Well, it's yeah. funny because I don't hear that. You know, I can read. Um, I just finished uh, a Danny Shapiro novel, Signal Fires, which I thought was amazing. And she definitely has a voice. But if I sat down and tried to write like Danny Shapiro, it would not. It would not work. Mm-mm. And no. I can't even study my own voice. I just sit down and write, Mm-mm. and there it is. So. Um, I think as a writer, you have to get to the point where you let go of thinking about that mm-hmm. and you just, and you just write your voice. If, if you have one will come, will come through. Um, I don't think you could stifle it if you tried. And if you do, then it's well, not you authentic. Can, but it's a life's work <clears throat> yeah. to, to dig it out. Well, yeah, it, yeah, I mean, I, I think if you try to do anything else, it's not, a, it's not authentic. And I think a reader you can, can, it, can it, feel it. It, it, a reader notices that, or I do. Immediately yeah. they do, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. I love all this advice talk because it's, um, I think a lot of people who listen take a piece of this and a piece of that, yeah. and it kind of helps them forge their own path and their own way yeah. of doing yeah. things. So, yeah. so if we can... Uh, Pamela, I'd love to start talking about characters. So in the book, you have a beautiful marriage and a marriage falling apart. Mm-hmm. You have siblings who love each other and siblings who are barely speaking. Mm-hmm. And heartbreakingly, you have a best friendship that's cracked and broken. Mm-hmm. Your characters feel so real. And it's like we grew up with them all, you know, like we've known them all our lives. How do you get to know your characters so well? Well, that's where growing up in the South is a boon to a writer because we have so many characters <laughs> and every character in my book, you know, I could take you by the hand probably and find one within three mile radius who's pretty much like that. Yeah. But for me, when I write is similar to what I like to read. I've always been interested in books about character much more than plot um, because I, I just find people fascinating. I mean, when I was little, we used to, every Sunday after church, go to Morrison's cafeteria and for lunch. That was the big treat. And I can remember standing in line at Morrison's cafeteria and looking at all these people. And I was an only child. So I had, I had a very vivid, um, uh, imaginary life and I would watch all these different people and they were also fascinating to me. And, and, why had they chosen to wear that that day? And and look at how they talk to each other. There's something going on there. They're not quite as close as they would like to be. I just, you know, I would make up stories for all, all those different people. So I've just observed people all my life. And, you know, for every single person on the planet, there's a different story. And there's a different character. And I, you know, I could write till the end of my life and never begin to scratch the surface. So... That's good. I, I Let's just bottle that. I Boom. love character. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's what I love. Awesome. Which you know that which also goes into I'm gonna change tracks for a second sure. and talk about songwriting because <laughs> you and I have talked through the years about the multiple ways of, of telling a story. Mm-hmm. And your husband Pat Terry is a very famous songwriter. And mm-hmm. when I'm asked, what's the one superpower you wish you had? <laughs> um Pam already knows this. Yeah. I wish I could write a song. Yeah. 
Um, and he's a damn fine songwriter at that. He, you know, he wrote for slackers like Tanya Tucker, It's a Little Too Late, The Oak Ridge Boys, Kenny Chesney. But you wrote a song I that did. was published and sang, and it's one of my favorite stories. So I want you to talk a little bit about living always in that milieu of storytelling because not everybody lives with another storyteller and you've lived in this kind of milieu of storytelling songwriting well we always say and then the funny story we have uh no left brain in our house we there's just not one (laughs) i mean we we don't have one uh but we're really fortunate i think because uh our con i mean we never tire of things to talk about i mean you know we're constantly um you know, it's a constant chatter. But that, the song that we wrote was called Jump On It. It was uh, recorded by John Anderson. And um, I came home one afternoon having seen this place. And I I remember we were going to dinner and I said, you know, I saw this place today and I, I'm going to write a short story about it. And I started describing it to Pat. And he, I can never, never forget. He was driving, and his eyes got really steely. And he said, "No, no, no, no. That's not a short story. That's that's a song." And he said, "Do you want in on it?" <laughs> I went, so what do you mean? Do I want in on it? It's my idea. So he wanted us to write it together. Um, he sort of locked me in a room, and all day we worked on this song, and we did have fun. But he's a lot more disciplined when he when he gets <laughs> gets a bone in his mouth than I am. And I by the end of it, I said, you know, I'm the Harper Lee of country music. I will write one song, and that's it. I'm out of here. Um, oh my goodness! But you know, it's funny. It's a very different discipline um, mm-hmm. than novel writing. And I usually he usually doesn't read my books until they're done, until they're bound, because. I have learned through the years that when I, when I read him something that I'm working on, he'll say, well, no, that's, that's not the right word here. Or you, you, you haven't spelled it out enough. And I'm saying, well, that, that'll be spelled out several chapters down. But because a song is so concentrated and um, you have to get your idea out really fast, um, it's a completely different discipline. And so I think because of that, because we do sort of do the same thing and that we're writers, but we do completely different things. Um, we both find what the other does mysterious and interesting. And so it's a double the fun for us. Yeah. So Patty, it's harder to fun write a song. Fun until it's time to pay. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's, harder, to write, it's harder to write a song than it is to write. Well, for me. For him, it's not, but for me, it is. It's a whole different. It's, it's a whole fun different to have discipline. no left brain in the house. No, until well, it's time to it is until taxes. It is until taxes <laughs> come around. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I asked our our uh, accountants up in Nashville, and I asked him once. I said, "You know, I'm doing all this wrong. I know I am." He said, "Look, you actually pay your taxes." He said, "You know, we yeah. have, we deal with so many artists and writers up here. You know, we have to call them and remind them. You guys actually do it." So. So, yeah, that's hilarious. <laughs> that is so funny. Of course, now I can't get Tanya Tucker's It's a Little Too Late on yeah. it. It was one of my favorite right. songs yeah. she's ever done. She does it a lot still. We're, and it's shown up on American Idol a lot, which is great. Yeah. 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 It's mm-hmm. great. Um, so songwriting, novel writing, and now I hear you're an interior designer. Oh, I was. Too. <laughs> I was an interior designer for 15 years. Yeah. And, you know, I think that was a really great um, 
training ground for being a writer because, and I was still writing during that time, but I loved, I loved being a decorator and I would, you know, do people's houses completely over. And to do that, you have to find out who they are really quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, and you have to not just listen to what they say, but listen and look at what they're wearing and look and you really have to have um, really good observational skills to create a home that someone's going to be comfortable in. So I think it was a it was a good training ground and I loved it. I had wonderful clients and I got to um, decorate with incredible art and I had a great time. That's great. So it's, that's kind of one of the focuses we do here on the podcast is we talk about storytelling and all its different facets mm -hmm. and different different ways for creative people to express themselves. But um, at the core of it, it's all, like I said, it's all storytelling. Why is that so important to you? Why is storytelling in the forefront? Well, I mean, I think you could look back through history and see that telling stories is how we learn um, how we define the world and how we explain the world and how we understand it. I mean. Flannery O'Connor famously said, I don't know what I think until I write it down. Um, mm. And I think that's true with me as well. Um, I had somebody once say, I've, I've never been in therapy and I probably should, <laughs> should have, but I never have. But someone said, well, you do your own therapy because you write. And that's true. I, I, I write out how I feel. And I let another character deal with a problem that I may be dealing with myself and let them work it through. And um, I think that's why stories are so important. Um, and if we remove stories um, from life, uh, what do we have? Dogma? Nothing. Propaganda? What do we have? Yeah. So nothing. logic. Um, that doesn't get us very far. No, it, it doesn't, doesn't get our hearts very far. No, it doesn't. Yeah. And um, it doesn't help us grow. It doesn't help us evolve. And another thing, um, for me, stories, literature, um, is how we develop empathy. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you, you are able to see outside yourself and you see inside someone else. And that creates and fosters and nourishes empathy. And God knows <laughs> we will, we need that we today need that. and we will always, we and we will much. always need that. So um, that's one of the reasons I feel honored to write. I think too, that stories are how we make meaning out of right. our life. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. So you love the Scottish Highlands. Mm -hmm. It's very obvious, especially for everyone who follows you on social media, which yeah. I encourage everyone to do. Yes. And you and I both, and we, you and I both love London yes. so much. Oh, yes. It's my favorite and, city. And you wrote about the, it's my favorite city. Mm -hmm. And you wrote about the Scottish Highlands in your last novel. Mm -hmm. So before we kind of round this out and dive into Anne Burt's book, I want you to talk to us about what a landscape can mean to a person. Mm -hmm. You and I talk about how to, how an outer geography is off, often an echo of an inner landscape, mm -hmm. what that can mean to a person, a writer, a creative soul. Mm -hmm. What, what are the, Scottish Highlands mean to you? Well, the first time I went was way back in 2003. And um, I, I, can't, I can't really remember why we decided to go to Scotland, but we thought I had kind of always wanted to go and been curious about it and seen the hills and wanted to see it. Um, so we went and not really knowing what to expect. And 
I remember we had come, we had left Edinburgh and come around up through the Highlands and round the corner into Glencoe, which is where the big Three Sisters Mountains are. If you've never seen those, that's uh, Dickens called that area the burial place of giants. Um, and that's really how it feels. And it's impossible to take a photograph of it. I've tried. You just might as well put your camera away. You need to feel it, not not photograph it. Um, but I remember standing there and it felt almost physical, like there was a cord inside of you being yanked. Um, oh, and wow. I felt a connection to that landscape that I had never felt in the States anywhere. And I'm pretty connected to the South and I grew up here, but this was something different. And so we went back the next year for three weeks and we've gone back. Gosh, we're going back in September. We've, we've gone back just almost every year that we could. Um, and we really loved going back after the pandemic. It was like, that was like torture, not being able, but every time I've been, I, I feel the same connection and especially to the highlands and the, the islands. Um, I, that is my ancestry. So I can only assume that that has something to do with it. Not long after our first visit, I was speaking with this older lady, um, that I didn't know too well, but I was telling her about this and she said, Oh, darling. She said, that's ancestral memory. And I uh, thought, yeah. I thought, and yeah. eh, that's a little too woo woo for me. But the more I started researching that and the more I looked into that, I think she's absolutely right. It's real. And I talked to another friend who is from Scottish um, ancestry, and he said that he had felt that in Scotland and in Africa. And he said, "I, you know, let's wow. face it, that's where we come from. So, from. so I think there is something to do, something about that. And I think, you know, just like generational, you're now discovering that generational trauma is a real thing. Um, I think sense of place, ancestral memory is a real thing. Um, and, you know, I, I have always wanted to read things that make me see. Mm. And any time that someone can articulate their landscape, I feel like I'm in the story. I feel like I'm, I've been plopped in there. Um, and I, I'm one of those people that's really sensitive to that. I'm sensitive to, to my surroundings and my, and the landscape of, of, where I live. So um, I think that's a, it's a legitimate thing. Oh, I believe in ancestral. I felt yeah. that, I feel that way when I, when I went to Ireland, I was like, yeah, yeah. Wait, have I been here? I oh, was I here. What? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, I a hundred percent Callahan. Agree. You can't really ignore that. <laughs> can't get away from no. <laughs> I was, I was a McDonald's and it's so funny whenever I say to anyone, I've got the Scottish on both sides, but whenever I say to anyone over there that, uh, I was a McDonald. I mean, they invite me to their house. It's like there's yeah. tons of McDonald's yeah, in Scotland, but boy, you know, you're part of the family if you are one. Oh. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. That is awesome. Yeah. Oh man, shoot. Pam, it's been such a pleasure oh, to was, read your work and to get to know to you. And I feel like I could do this for days. Well, call me back <laughs> later this afternoon. We'll talk. Okay. Oh, <laughs> Careful what you ask for. <laughs> Our listeners are going to just love uh, hearing from you, and they can't wait to get their uh, hands on your book, When the Moon Turns Blue. It's a stunner. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Had fun. And now as we continue talking about novels that turn our assumptions upside down... 
about ourselves and our families. Let's welcome Ann Burt. Ann Burt is an award-winning, listen how many hats this extraordinary woman wears. I know, writer, editor, producer, and project leader in both literary arts and communications. She founded Brick and Stylist Consulting and was the chief creative officer for Facing History and Ourselves, an international education nonprofit that teaches about racism, anti-Semitism, prejudice, and intolerance so that students are equipped to prevent this and these injustices in the future. She received her BA in history from Yale University and an MA in creative writing and English literature from New York University. She's a total slacker, but we had her on anyway. So, Anne, welcome. (laughs) Welcome. Hi, I'm just thrilled to be here. I'm really excited to talk to you both, but I have to say what I really want to do is run and read everything that Pam Terry has written right right now. I know. What a great interview that was. You have to go find her old blogs on the House of Edward. She, um, They're just extraordinary. She even, I wish I had it to show you. Well, listeners can't see it, but there's a, Mm -hmm. she did a, beautiful handmade book of some of her essays that that are bound I know but I want to talk about your novel and I feel like you and Pam it's the perfect combination not only about assumptions but setting and ancestral settings Mm -hmm. and where you're from and and what the truth means and this is such a propulsive novel the dig I turned the pages like mad, trying to figure out the truth of Antonia's past. And for our listeners, let you let me tell you a little bit. This book is about Sarajevo, I always stumble over that word, born <laughs> siblings who join a wealthy Midwest family. They're adopted when they're children. And now the brother has gone missing and the sister Antonia must face and race against the clock to finally find deeply hidden family secrets. So, Anne, that's the summary, but this book is about so much more than that. This has been called a family tragedy, an examination of family secrets, a chilling tale, a propulsive thriller. What I want to know is, what would you call it, and what's it really about? (laughs) Well, thank you. I mean, you know, it's a really interesting experience writing something and bringing it into the world in um, an industry that really wants to pinpoint genre pretty specifically. Um, Yeah, exactly. We all as writers and readers know that there's so much behind each world that's presented in in a package, and it has to be in a package. We, We understand why. But my novel, I think, uh, you know, I deliberately chose to bring in elements of, of a thriller, elements of a mystery, but at its heart, it really is a deep examination of one young woman's past, present, and how they clash and then come together in what feels like a propulsive and explosive way, but is really about the, the kind of the shards of history all around her for 30 years that have built up in the people who love her but who have themselves very, very complicated relationships to history in the past, and each have an individual reason for trying to hide something about Antonia's own history from her. Now, my story is about a young woman who was born in Sarajevo. I am not Bosnian by birth. Um, And it was very important to me to say that this is a young girl who grew up in the Midwest. She had a past that was from a different world in a different country, Part of what moves this character, I think, is that she was three 
when all of these really tragic and terrible things happened to her as a result of the Bosnian genocide and what happened in the early 1990s. But she herself only has fragmented memories. And she has to learn what to do with herself, with her own history, with her own past, but with her very present, very American ambitions as well. So there's a reconciliation that has to happen inside of herself while she's reconciling her understanding of what was true and what she was told was true from the past. I don't want to give away no, any of the actual no, surprises. No, definitely so don't. If that sounds vague, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 that's okay. And I, I just loved the, um, just the, the, the pieces of her that would fall into place as she was searching throughout the book. It's really a character that you know you really are drawn to. But um, and root for you're rooting root for, for definitely to find root out. For. Yeah. So I, I know that we can't always say a specific spark where an idea comes from, but do you have any idea where the story came from for you? Where did it all begin? Yeah, um, there were a few things. I mean, I think I've always thought for me as a writer and for probably most artists in some way, shape or form, uh, there's a kind of flypaper theory of life that you go through, like right? That. Like you kind of walk along and you're like flypaper, like as you're going, certain things just Great stick. Analogy. And then they kind I of stick forever, that. right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, one of the things that, so I would say it started with two things that really stuck. One thing that stuck was actually back in, I'm you know, happy to say my age, I am 55 years old. So when I was, and by the way, I'm a debut novelist at 55. So I'm awesome. pretty excited about that. I, Congratulations. Like, you, know you have dreams, awesome. keep pushing forward. Yes, I have all of those jobs that I had, they've all been meaningful and important. And I've, you know, supported a family and I've loved the work that I've done, but I've always wanted to write novels and, you know, my time's not up. It's just beginning. So it's very exciting. Um, okay. So in 1987, I was a 19 year old college student and I left the United States for the first time. And it was on a trip to then the former Yugoslavia, the first country I ever went to outside the U S and the first city I ever went to was Sarajevo. Um, I was traveling with a singing group, actually. It was, <laughs> I, I went to Yale University, as you said, and there was a women's Balkan folk music group called the Yale Slavic Chorus. Um, I don't, again, I don't have Balkan roots. I fell in love with the music. Yes. I mean, this relates very much to songwriting and singing and the different art forms and how they influence you. Just the sounds of this country resonated with me. I'm Jewish by background, and I do think the Eastern European connection and the, the resonance and the melodies, they touch something really powerful and really deep in me as a young person. So I traveled with this singing group and I landed in Sarajevo in 1987. It was still the former Yugoslavia. The first city I ever saw, what I saw with very innocent eyes, but this is what I was seeing, was I saw mosques next to churches, next to synagogues in a town square where people were communing and talking and it was vibrant and drinking coffee and laughing and arguing in the streets. And as a young woman, I thought, oh my gosh, this is a possibility. You can have this this beautiful confluence of all of these different faiths and traditions. And you know, fast forward just a couple of years later, of course, the uh, the uh, everything exploded. The Balkan Wars and and you know, centuries of conflict that we all know has always been there. It exploded, but but that idea was planted in my head. And the tragedy then of everything that happened to Sarajevo and the destruction and the destruction of the Bosnian people. And it, it linked to stories that I had heard about my family and my, my daughter's grandparents who are Holocaust survivors very directly. So all of this really, really resonated with me. And I had this, um, this dashed hope 
but but originally this hope of what the world might be. And I think as a writer and artist, those moments of vision, they stick with you on that flypaper. So, so that was one. Um, and the other was this novel is loosely based on the Greek tragedy uh, Antigone, the Sophocles version of this. I first saw uh, not the play Antigone, but I saw a dance company, Annie B. Parsons, do a reinterpretation of a dance of Antigone. So the first experience I ever had of the story of Antigone was already a retelling through dance. So that stuck in my mind too. And so for years, I was always thinking, I want to do something with Antigone. I love the themes of Antigone, this young woman, lone woman standing up against uh, what she feels is the wrong version of justice, this, the version of justice um, administered by the state, as opposed to the version of justice, justice administered by the heart and by your moral core. Um, and those two things came together when I decided to write the game. Those are wonderful. Um, I'm also fascinated. I heard it compared, your book compared to Succession, which I also have equated with Greek mythology as well. It's just a, a modern retelling of it. Have you heard that? And, and I didn't know what you thought about that. Oh, yeah. No, that was fantastic. You know, the amazing writer, Angie Kim, whose Miracle Creek is fabulous. If you haven't read that book. I have. Please yeah. run and, and read Angie Kim's yes. book, Miracle Creek. Uh, luckily for all of us, she has a new book coming out in the next couple of years. So she said that. Um, and that does resonate because the family that my main character, Antonia, and her brother, Paul, were adopted into in um, uh, the contemporary Midwest, they are, it's sort of like a small town succession. If you don't know, you know, succession on HBO, it's kind of a big media conglomerate and it's in New York and they're extraordinarily wealthy beyond any of our possible dreams. Well, maybe not yours, but certainly mine. Mine. Um, Way beyond mine. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, This is sort of like a small town succession where uh, this small town in Minnesota, there is uh, a family, the King family, and they have a very prominent construction company and they're one of the most successful businesses in town and they're very influential. So um, what they do in this small town, this fictional town, really matters and really has an impact. So that's a similar kind of world in which um, Antonia, who's an adopted daughter into this family, uh, really clashes with the kind of the morals and the ethics of the adopted family. They all really want the same thing ultimately, which is to have peace and harmony, but they have incredibly different visions of what that means. Antonia's is an inclusive vision that um, is about immigrant and refugee communities from all over the world coming into this small Minnesota town. Uh, Her adoptive family, not so much. And that creates a lot of tension, drama, and uh, anguish, honestly, because there's a lot of tragedy that happens in this book as well. Yes, there is. Well, I am a Greek myth geek. So in high school, I took Latin. And so Greek mythology has always been, I'm so happy with the read, so many retellings bubbling up. And when I hear that a novel, the spine underneath has some, because I think almost all stories have a, a, a mythological undertone. I think everything we do does, but I think it's fascinating that Antigone means worthy of one's parents. That's what the name Antigone means. And this novel is so much about who her parents are, why they adopted her without giving anything else away. But there are so many twists and turns, which is what I think the word propulsive comes from when, when people describe mm-hmm. it. Our friend, Christina Baker Klein, you know, talks about the propulsive pacing of it. And I think that I want to know, 
if you are, we just talked to Pam, who is much more of a a pantser, sentence by sentence, the, the statue appears and she wants to know. And sometimes people call it plotting versus pantsing. I love the way Neil Gaiman designates it as architect versus gardener. And I want to know how much you knew about the story, about the twists and the ending. Are you more architect or gardener? Did you know where it was going? Mm. Yeah. Um, I'm a complete combination of both, I have to say. Awesome. And the the um, the vision that worked for me for this is I'm, it, I, I had a roadmap and I've seen this analogy as well too. And this one really, really does work for me. So I knew very, very strongly the very first scene of the novel, which takes place in Sarajevo. It is the one set scene outside of Minnesota, and it is through the eyes of the then three-year-old Antonia. I knew it had to start with that scene because of the power of of what actually happened. Um, And then I knew throughout the book that there were actual kind of physical places I had to get my character, but I didn't know how I was going to get her there. For example, um, the end of part one has Antonia slipping out of her adoptive family's home and getting in a car and speeding to the town where her brother was last seen. I knew I had to get her out of the house and into that car and that that would close part one. I didn't know what was going to happen in the house to get her there. I didn't know how the scenes were going to play out. I didn't know who she was going to talk to or what she was going to say. But I had that kind of guidepost. And then once I met that guidepost, I had the next guidepost and the next guidepost. So it's kind of like that. You know, I'm happy to have a map but I'm also happy to say, wait a minute, something looks really interesting over here. I see something shiny. Something shiny over there. Yeah, exactly. Which is definitely a very, you know, the, the writer's privilege is to say, wait a minute, let's explore this really deeply. Let's look at the, 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 the wildflowers on the side of the road and explore them and see what color they are in the sunlight. You know, I, I wouldn't enjoy writing unless I could do that too. So yeah, it's propulsive. But I also am, in a lot of ways, a pretty literary writer at heart. That's awesome. That's wonderful. So when um, you talk about plotters and pantsers, they combine them to be a planter. So I'll just suggest <laughs> that with architect and gardener, you could be a, a guard detect. Oh, a guard detect. I, like I, I like that. I like both of those. I think, I like yeah, that. guard detect sounds like a superhero, doesn't, doesn't it? it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's so, your next um, character right there. <laughs> that's right. <She'll laughs> the guard detect of the universe. Yeah, she'll be writing for DC <laughs> Comics next. Okay, so you have talked a little bit about your history um, of singing with the Slavic women's group and dancing um, with postmodern choreographers, and you graduated to so many ideas and jobs and things. How does all of that come together for you and mix those hats together to become the writer that you are? Um, I think it's because before all of those things, I was the writer that I am. Oh, I love that. I want you to say that again. Say that again. I think it's because before all of those things, I was the writer that I am first. I love it. Love it. Right now, I'm actually looking at a, 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 a drawing that my grandmother, who was a visual artist, made of me. It's on my website. I know nobody can hear a drawing. I, I wish you could. I wish we had synesthesia, which I can also never say right, but... I always wished I had that. Um, uh, of me as six years old, reading a book and absorbed in a story. I even remember the novel that I was reading at six. It was Little Men by Louisa May Alcott. Um, wow. You know, like so many of us, I was a precocious reader. So many of us writers, right? And all I wanted to do from a young age is just be in the middle of novels. 
Um, it was the world that just opened everything else up to me. I felt excited there. I felt alive in there. And I think at a certain point, you know, a switch just flipped and I started making characters I was reading into stories of my own, um, mm. and sent them on journeys. You know, I, I remember having notebooks and notebooks, those composition notebooks with the marbled cover and writing, uh, adventures. I would take characters from one story and I would meet them up in characters from a completely different novel and, you know, characters who died. I certainly remember in Little Women when Beth died, I was like, oh no, 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 this is not okay. So I wrote all these stories about Beth. I was like, she can't die. She's too great. So I, I had a whole series of stories about her. I, I remember with uh, the Little House in the Big Woods novels, when when Mary went blind, I was that was not okay. I had to change it. So, I mean, <laughs> or I when think they got I, lost in the blizzard. Oh, that was horrible. I, I still think about that all the time. Isn't that crazy? Oh, I know. Stuck it in is. my craw. They got lost in a blizzard, for God's sake. That's so mean of the writer. It's terrible. Yeah, and that really happened, you know. That yeah. was that was a, a memoir. Um, again, back to that flypaper theory, right? I think you know, for for those of us who are writers, um, the imaginary characters are flies on our flypaper as deeply and more and as powerfully as the actual real things that we experience too. Um, and it just feels meaningful. It feels like something I I I've always wanted to do and, and in fact maybe felt despite all the other work that I've done that I was best suited to do is bring characters and stories to life and give them to other people you know and we all you know as as Pam was talking about in the first half of the episode about being a storyteller and how we all process stories and need stories and create empathy out of stories a hundred percent and so therefore if you know, if we have the the drive to share stories as well as receive stories, you know, it's really hard not to do that. So I think, you know, coming back, Ron, to your, to your question, it never left me. I never didn't write. I certainly was a person who sat up in my attic and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. And I published short pieces along the way, but I was raising a family and I was working full time like so many of us are. And the short pieces were what worked for me. Um, but I can't say that I wasn't always trying to write a novel. I always was. I have several of those unfinished novels in the proverbial drawer, as so many do. <laughs> yes. um, and, you know, no surprise, suddenly when I had kids in college instead of at home, I was like, oh, hmm, this feels different. And I think I can really now take this impulse all the way. And I did. Oh, Anne, that's incredible. I love that story. I think, oh. I'm, yeah. And I think all of us have that story of of, of a of an adult life where a, a, either a family member or a friend or someone who knew us when we were in the years that we don't have a lot of memories. And they say things like your nose was always in a book. You know, you were yeah. always reading. Right. And I also and, have to give a general shout out to um, a beautiful writing community that I'm part of. You mentioned our mutual friend, Christina Baker Klein. Um, she is friend to so many writers and so many others of us you know, you at Friends and Fiction model this every single day with what you do. You know, we lift each other up, we bring each other forward, and we help each other get through these rough times when you say, I, I don't have the bandwidth, I can't do it, I can't see my story to conclusion. And I have enough of a beautiful writing community of other writers who say, nope, that's not okay, I'm going to help lift you up, I'm going to help get you there, and we're going to help each other. And that's the myth of the, you know, the lone artist. I just, I don't, 
I don't believe that for me that that's a possibility. I a hundred percent agree. And I, we talk about this all the time. And when people ask me, what is your favorite thing about being published or or being a writer or, or getting that first contract? They think we're going to say, seeing our name on a book at, at 55. And that is thrilling. But honest to God, the best part is, is this life in letters to be kind of melodramatic. But yeah. people who care about stories and writing, like I, I said at the opening, Pam and I have been having this conversation for since the day we met, right? Because yeah. when you care about the power of story and you care about trying to say it with the right words and sentences and um, that is a great life. And so, yep. yeah, it's true. And actually, Christina is a very big part of why this book exists in the first place. And I just oh. want to give her credit for being such an incredible collaborator. She and I co-authored an anthology of stories, uh, of essays, um, uh, called about face that were women of all different backgrounds and ages. And we asked them to look in the mirror and not stop and then write about what they really saw. And that was a really powerful experience. And from then on, we were deep and great collaborators. And it was through conversations with her about actually potentially uh, coming up with a teleplay idea that the dig came to life. And then it turned out that this was the novel I was going to write. And Christina was absolutely, you know, a wonderful support as I brought that novel into the world. She's been a, she, she, you know, told me about it and her whole face lit up. So Oh, that's awesome. I love it. So I want to go back a little bit and um, talk about how the past influences the present, even if it's buried as it is in Antonia, um, and and even sometimes kept a secret. You have a line in the novel where you say, I shook off my origins and that arriving in Minnesota was the beginning of our life. But it wasn't the beginning that Antonia didn't really shake off her origins, did she? Her cracked memories return and things begin to make sense. So talk to us about all of that and how explosive memories return and shake up our life. Yeah. Well, uh, the epigraph that I chose for the dig is from Antigone, and it speaks directly to that. And the quote is, it is the dead, not the living, who make the longest demands. Yes, 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 yes. And I use that as a guidepost for Antonia's character and for the development of her character all through the course of the novel. She is, she's haunted as, as many of us are, but she is haunted because she doesn't know what she's haunted by exactly. She saw bits and pieces of, and I can say this because it happens in the beginning of the book, right. um, the, uh, the death of her birth mother by violent means. She was there when that happened as a three-year-old. But she didn't know how it happened or what the consequences were or what the circumstances were that led to it. And she was ripped away from her place of origin. And she and her brother were the only conduits for each other from this specific past. And they grew up in a family where not necessarily for bad reasons, although it was masking some very dark secrets, they were told better to forget your past and focus on your happy present and your happy future. That doesn't work. And we all know very, very well-meaning and very well-intentioned yeah. nice people who say that, but yeah. nice try. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> nice try. Nice try. Yeah. Wow. God, this is so good. I hate that we are running out of time for this, but tell everybody where they can find you online. Okay. Where they can get the novel and also 
what you might be working on now. Oh, yeah. So The Dig is available for pre-order right now at any bookseller that you frequent, whether in person or online. So please pre-order it. It will be available in stores March 7th. I would love, love, love for any listeners to pre-order, please, because that really does help all of us as writers. You know, I don't know if people know that, but the more pre-orders you get, the more people say, okay, I guess it's going to be of interest for people to actually find this novel. You can look online at Anbert Writer, all one word, that's A-N-N-E-B-U-R-T. The E is in the Ann and the U is in the Bert. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, dot com and find out more information. My publisher, I just want to give them a shout out. It's Counterpoint Press. They're an independent publisher that's based out of California. They publish an incredible range of beautiful work. And to be an independent publisher in today's marketplace is a labor of both love and brilliance. Counterpoint Press does both. So check out their catalog. I think that would be of interest to your listeners as well. And yes, I'm working on another novel right now. And I can say that there's a very different, but also Greek influence behind that one too. So stay tuned. That's awesome. Yes, yes. So Pam, would you come back and join us and tell us a little bit about where people can find you online and talk about... Um... PamelaTerry.net is my website, which I am terrible about updating. Social media is not really my thing, but I am on Instagram at Pamela and Edward. That's the one thing that I started years ago that I really sort of started for myself and in just as a visual diary for me. And through the years, I've just met all these wonderful people on Instagram. And so I update that just about every day. And there's information about my work there as well. And you can find When the Moon Turns Blue everywhere on February 21st. And if, like Anne said, if you'd pre-order, that would be great. But yeah, I'm looking forward to, I'm going to be on a small tour and I'm looking forward to meeting people in person and and I'm working on um, the next book. Is the tour on your website? <laughs> Not yet. It will be. I, I, I've got, okay, it I've will got, be. Um, okay. Yeah, it will be. Uh, I'll be putting it on Instagram. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. I'm going to be on a tour as well. I hope that we can cross paths. Sometime. Oh, wouldn't that be fun? Yeah, oh, that would be I great. Want to come find yeah. y'all I know. On the road. Yeah. You can't do that without us. <laughs> yeah. No, come along. <laughs> Let's play. Yes. Let's yes. I'll be near you, Patty. Right. I'm going to be in Beaufort, Patty. So I'll be near you. So I don't know if you're going oh, to be down there. I hope I'm in town for yeah. that. Yeah. I'll go check it out. Yeah. Do you know when you're going to be there? Yeah, it's the 22nd at the arts and some luncheon. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. I'm primarily in the Northeast, but I am going to be in Austin, Texas at Book People on March oh, 30th. That's great. And that'll be a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. One time fun, okay. My goodness. Thank you both for joining us today. This has been so wonderful to talk to both of you. I can't thank you enough. Thank, thank you both. You. It's been a real pleasure. I want to do this every week. And you were the perfect. I know. And you two are the perfect combination. <laughs> and I knew it when I read both books. I was like, mm-hmm. the juxtapositions between the cracks of assumptions and the setting and the secrets. I just, I know that everyone's going to run out and grab these books. Yes. Agreed. Next time we'll do it in person. Well, I'm going to run out and grab Pamela's. <laughs> <that's for sure. laughs> Same I know next time in person. Yes. In person. Next time yeah. in person. Absolutely. And thank you to our growing list of listeners. We are so excited to grow this community of amazing literary citizens. We appreciate every share post and review. 
We can't wait until next week. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends and Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.